0: Today's guest is one of the co-hosts of the award-winning Good Friends of Jackson and Liars podcast, writer of numerous books you probably have in your collection from the likes of Pelgrane Press, Stygian Fox, Cubicle 7 and of course Chaosium and was once in a Gandalf look-alike contest with Ian McKellen Kane
1: 2nd. <laughs> the all-round talented git Mr. Scott Dawood. Oh thank you, I, I'll own up to being a git, I'm not sure about talented.
0: You're very talented Scott and you're far too <laughs> modest. Okay so as we normally do when we have any guests on and and to be honest, our watershed is that Dennis the Twiller actually took part in this. We didn't think he would. <laughs> he was actually. We thought he'd be a bit more serious, but he was actually. He's actually really fun to talk to. Uh, it was, we we do a little quiz so just to see where you are. You're at mentally mm. today,
2: and I believe Griff's got the questions there. Griff, I do. So you need to answer these. No thinking. First thing that flashes into your head.
1: That, that's how I do everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay then, Edgar Allan Poe or M R James? James, fired at by a trebuchet, or fired from a trebuchet.
1: I would rather be fired at by a trebuchet because I stand more chance of dodging that. Good, that's a good good answer. It depends
0: what they're firing at you, though, doesn't it? Uh, If it's a big, it's a big hive of angry bees. I mean, they're going to get one way or another, aren't they?
2: That's true. (laughs) I didn't think that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Hunted by a serial killer. Or Framed for a Serial Killer's Crimes? Ooh. Um,
1: oh, let's go for Framed for a Serial Killer's Crimes. I, if nothing else, to make the next few months interesting. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'll make a note of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> for no reason whatsoever.
0: No
2: reason. <laughs> the Shining or Salem's Lot? Ooh, uh,
1: The uh, the Shining. I'd I, I find it very difficult to, to choose between them because I think they're both excellent, but The Shining just has the edge.
2: Oh, it's a gorilla with a shark's mouth or a shark with gorilla's arms. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll go for the shark with gorilla's arms because at least I can get out of the water. <laughs>
0: that Well, that's the sensible choice. <laughs> I mean, we mentioned this in the Dennis Dutrilla the one. We, we asked Keith from the Titterpigs. What was it? Fist fighter gorilla. Or what was the other thing? Or, oh, wrestle a crocodile. And he said, fist fighter gorilla. And we just couldn't believe he'd said it. <laughs> because I was, you know, a gorilla can literally pull your arms off the sockets. Mm-hmm. Whereas gor- oh, yeah. crocodiles are really easy to wrestle.
2: But, you know, it takes all sorts. But a shark with a gorilla's arms could climb onto the boat. That's oh, That's true. Geez.
1: Again, yeah, yeah, I'm not thinking through all the angles here. This is what happens when you tell me to answer off the cuff. I'm just getting myself
2: into more trouble here. (laughs) Okay, and the last one. Thrown down an oubliette or bricked up alive in a boudoir?
1: I bricked up alive in a boudoir because it would smell better. It would. Yeah, but there's a chance you could escape from an oubliette, isn't there? Oh With, bro- with broken I, legs. I, 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 am old <laughs> and fat. I don't think I'd stand much chance of clambering out of one.
0: <laughs> if you were left there long enough, you'd be old and thin. Though that's you? <laughs> true. <laughs> okay, well, I think uh, I think we've we've learned a lot from that, haven't we, Griff?
2: I think so. I'm gonna I'm gonna input the data into the AI. <laughs> uh, um, I'm I'm using uh, these questions to slowly train an AI up. To be an AI designer. Hmm. Okay. So Jeez, maybe if, data.
0: if the other good friends of Jackson and Elias guys need an AI podcaster,
1: <laughs> just get, get in touch, yeah. Oh, um, don't, please don't give them ideas.
0: <laughs> they would never get rid of you, Scott. <laughs> um, okay. So I said, we've learned a lot from you on that. One, the main thing being you don't really think things through. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think would be a fair fair comment, wouldn't it? Yeah,
1: I yeah, uh, I, I don't think that's a great surprise to anyone who knows me. Really.
0: <laughs> okay, so at this point, we ask um we ask our guests to tell us any ghost story they've had or anything with UFOs or or any cryptids. And a, a confession to make here: when I asked Scott if he would come onto the podcast, and he 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 said, "Yeah, I'd love to." He told me what this story would be, and <laughs> and I th- I I said to Griff. We have to hear this. (laughs) Pain of death. We have to hear this. So, Scott, do you want to go and go ahead and tell us your story? And I'm getting all for this.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, this could be a long one because there's a bit of context to it. But shortly after I moved to the UK, I I moved into a flat share situation with. uh, um, well a friend and a bunch of strangers and one of the people I was sharing a flat with was very very interested in the occult in all forms and I, uh, I sort of helped him and encouraged him a bit in this and got quite interested myself and well you know, to the extent where I ended up practicing ritual magic for some time after that I should explain that I am a deeply sceptical person and I don't necessarily believe in anything supernatural. But at the same time, I did find, you know, a lot of the occult stuff I got involved with was A, fun, and B, uh, interesting from a psychological point of view, even if I didn't believe that there was any real magic to it. But uh, (laughs) this this... (laughs) flatmate of mine worked with a woman who had had a bit of a rough life. She spent uh, most of her adult life looking after her, her invalid father, who was a bit of an abusive bastard, but he, she'd stayed with him. And eventually he'd he died and she was in the position of trying to sell her house and was really struggling to do so. Um, So my flatmate at the time, uh, his name's Paul, not Paul Fricker, but uh, a different Paul. Uh, Paul decided that he wanted to help this woman sell her house. And a big part of that was redecorating the place because it was in a bit of a state. And so he wrote me and our other flatmates into going around there and doing the wallpapering and a bit of painting and stuff like that not that any of us knew anything about decorating but we were young (laughs) and enthusiastic oh that's important isn't it (laughs) well i'd like to think so and paul became increasingly convinced that there was something weird about this house And we all had, and I think this is down to suggest, suggestibility more than anything else, but we all had weird experiences there feeling, you know, drafts of air where, you know, there weren't any open windows or uh, doors closing when there wasn't uh, an easy explanation. I mean, most of which may just have been down to really crap insulation, but uh, at one point, Paul took a photograph of an open doorway and we could see what looked like a vague shape and eyes glinting in it and stuff like that. And again, you know, nothing that was categorical proof of anything, but it was all a bit creepy. And so he suggested that we try exercising the place. And um, I, I thought it sounded like a good laugh. So I'd recently picked up a copy of Dion Fortune's book, Psychic Self Defence, which covered stuff like this and how to make holy water and various protection rituals and stuff like that. And I thought this would be a good chance to put some of that to use. And so what we did was we we didn't tell the woman about any of this because I mean, why would you? It sounded absolutely well, nuts. <laughs> Obviously,
0: why why would you <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we we made up some holy water and sanctified everything and so on, and basically went round as we were decorating surreptitiously exercising the house and doing a few rituals here and there, and coincidentally finished the decorating at the same time. and what happened was well, well two things happened. One was, that she managed to sell the house almost immediately afterwards which again i put down to the decorating rather than the exorcism but yeah <laughs> hey uh but the other less explicable thing is almost immediately after that we started having weird shit happen around our shared house okay at night we'd hear the sound of footsteps running up and down the stairwell Again, doors would open and close, and there was just a feeling that something was wrong. Uh, One of my other flatmates, Rob, started referring to this unseen presence as the lodger, and we we all made jokes about the lodger, but one night I came home after going out to the cinema and all the lights were out, and I found Rob standing in the kitchen with a hatchet in his hand, just looking around wild-eyed. And he'd apparently been lying in his bedroom with no one else in the house and had been disturbed by someone or something banging loudly on his bedroom door. And so he'd he'd gone to investigate and found nothing there. And so he was just going around the house prowling, looking for whatever it was. And these phenomena continued for, well, as long as I was living in the house after that. And we we joked about it, but there was always the feeling that whatever we'd done at this woman's house, rather than just getting rid of it, instead we'd brought it home.
0: <laughs> I, I can tell Griffith's sitting there in frozen terror at this point because everything you just described happens in his house.
2: Yeah, <laughs> the thing the difference is i don't do recreational exorcisms <laughs> maybe that's well, a new hobby <laughs> yeah I mean, it sounds like the
1: perfect option to try there griff then i mean if <laughs> if you have something spooky around the house yeah just pick up a copy of psychic self-defense and have at it
2: i'll, I'll, I'll one have
0: one you can call like ghostbusters <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: i've got a couple of questions <laughs> <laughs> quite <first> unsurprisingly <laughs> you have a couple of questions yeah I mean, that is a brilliant story. That, that is, that's proper scary. That's um, Okay, so two questions. The first, uh, your friend, uh, what good did he think the hatchet would do? <laughs> I, I didn't ask. When you come
1: home and find one of your flatmates standing there in the dark, looking freaked out with a hatchet in his hand, you don't tend to ask lots of background questions. No, you,
2: so that is very true. That's very true.
0: I mean, maybe it was made of silver.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the second question, you you said that um, nothing happened to you when you left, so your sort of passenger lodger didn't move house with you. Do yeah. you know? what happened to your friends when you moved out uh well i'm still in touch with rob and i don't think it
1: followed him home no paul and carol who were also in the house at the same time i don't know i haven't spoken to them in years for all i know they could still have a
2: special friend lurking around their new homes yes well if you do go and knock on paul's door he'll be standing there with a hatchet. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, so be
2: very careful.
0: Yes. Well, well, that was that was worth the wait, Scott. <laughs> that,
2: that was amazing. That's amazing. Good, 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 good.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't believe in ghosts, but that's one of two times I swear I've lived in a haunted house. Uh, the other was in Dundee, uh, my parents' old place up there, where again, there was just a really weird atmosphere, particularly up in the attic. And my parents rented it out to a bunch of students at some stage. And it, it was like something out of Amityville. The the whole bunch of them just disappeared overnight. They all moved out and left all, left their belongings in the house. And wow. re- some of them refused to go back for them. And the story that one of them told afterwards was that he'd basically converted the attic into a bedroom had been sleeping up there and had woken up in the middle of the night convinced that someone or something was in the room with him and then something he couldn't see in the dark lifted him out of bed and threw him across the room wow
0: that happens a lot more than people think it does as well you see you hear a lot of accounts of people being thrown about or pushed I mean, I mean, Dennis, Dennis the Twiller was the last person we were on, and he was he was talking about a, a supposed a, a duppy wasn't it, that haunted his son, and mm. his daughter witnessed them getting pulled over by something, you know, from standing, mm. you know, it, mm. it happens a lot more than you think. It reminds me actually, you know, you're saying this this house was so haunted. Where I gr- I grew up in a in a pretty rough part of Liverpool, uh, Norris Green, right. Um, it borders Croxteth, you know, where the that Reese Jones yeah. was shot yeah, a, a number of years ago, and there was a place called the Buter Estate, and it was this awful council estate. It was all oh, it was just full of drug dealers and um, teenagers wanting to just destroy things, and it, it was it was pretty full. But there was one house that was boarded up, and it, the garden was all overgrown, and I asked someone who I knew who lived there what's going on with the house? And apparently this house was so haunted, people <laughs> literally wouldn't get through a day living in there. Oh, wow. They they tried numerous times to get people to move in. Within a day, they were like, I need to get out of here. There was screaming, shadows running past windows, things getting thrown about. And so this, this like, it was just, you know, an okay street with this just, like, one, you know, house of hell kind of stuck st- st- in the middle of it, all overgrown and creepy. <laughs>
1: Wow, yeah, that sounds like something straight out of uh, Clive Barker's The, for- the Forbidden. does. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about uh, about the podcast. Mm. I-, I was just going to say to Griff, when you offered to record the audio locally, I just thought that's definitely someone who's, who's fallen afoul to audio not working in the past before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So you've you reached a landmark episode recently, didn't you?
1: Well, yes, we've been going for 10 years now so yeah we just put out our 10th anniversary episode last week at the time of recording and yeah i mean that's I mean, when when we started out 10 years back we just I, I it it was a bit of a laugh we didn't take it particularly seriously at the time and the fact that we're around 10 years later and you know it snowballed into something that more than three or four people listen to mm. is just amazing to us
0: yeah it's um it it is. It is pretty amazing, you know, considering some some podcasts don't get past a year.
1: Mm. People just oh. give
0: up quite quickly. With with some of them I've seen,
1: even even a year is a long time. I I've looked at some figures a while back, and I think the vast majority, like ninety percent of podcasts, don't make it past
2: episode three or four.
0: So we're doing okay, Griff. We're, this is episode <laughs> ten for us.
2: Is this ten? This easy? is this is double figures. Oh well. Wow.
0: well well, you know, the, the Good Friends have been going 10 years. We've had 10 episodes. I think we're about parallel lines here, aren't yeah, yeah,
2: we?
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah about 10s, yeah
0: yeah I just want to talk about how I first became aware of of your your writing mm. the, I think the th- first thing I ever read that you'd written was was hell in Texas
1: oh God yeah
0: from um the things we leave behind mm. now yeah. I've I've spoken to to Seth Skorkowski about this and he always whenever, whenever you get brought up in conversation he always mentions this scenario and he said it was, it's like you had been there you'd done this mm-hmm well, I mean, had you had you ever been to one of these Helen Helen Texas houses?
1: Oh God, no, no, I've never been to Texas. I that that was all research. So what happened was I saw a documentary film some years back called Hell House which is all about these evangelical hell houses. And I, I just remember sitting there watching this with an increasing sense of horror at what I was seeing and thinking that I really had to use this in a scenario someday. And so Yeah, basically just researched it and read about the area where I wanted to set it. I decided to set it in East Texas for no other reason than I'm a big Joe R. Lansdale fan and a lot of stuff is set around there. And so it just felt familiar through his work uh not that hell in texas feels anything like a lansdale story but it was just the setting
0: the happenland wouldn't take any of that would they <laughs> They'd be <laughs> no, well in there really beating would. up all the monsters oh, they
1: really would yeah <laughs> and, and and so yeah I, I just read up on it uh and then i i wrote up an early version of it and keeper murph from the miskatonic university podcast was very kind in that he read over it and told me everything that i got wrong because he lives in east texas (laughs) in fact i created a fictional town in it but i gave it a very specific location and it turned out to be something like 10 miles from where murph lives just by coincidence I, and so, yeah, he just went through and sort of said, yeah, no, they they called. It, it would be a chief of police, not a sheriff. We don't have basements in East Texas or so lo- lots of useful stuff like that. So I went through and corrected all this stuff. And apparently the end result was good enough that when Seth read it, he thought I was Texan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you know, if you, do you own a gun or do you own many guns and do you shoot at clouds?
1: <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I do shout at clouds, but I don't shoot at them.
0: <laughs> when you get to a certain age, you just end up shouting at clouds, don't you? Uh,
1: invariably.
0: <laughs> so the, the next thing I'd like to, to mention is um is Masks and Ryan Lathotep. Mm. Now, I've read the entire scenario cover to cover and I've done a 16-part series on it for my channel. <laughs> and I you as as many would know you wrote the the peru chapter
1: yeah yeah
0: how daunting was that to to come in and add to something which so many people hold as a, as a sacred cow of gaming hey
1: yeah it was daunting at first but whatever trepidation i felt was quickly overcome by just sheer enthusiasm i first ran masks of neolathep back in 1985 when it came out in fact i liked it so much i ran it twice in the same year for two different groups and wow. this this was a formative experience for me as a role player that campaign just set my expectations of what an rpg campaign could be and that's still very much the case these days and so when mike approached me and sort of said yeah we're doing this new version uh do you want to get involved with revising it i I leapt at the chance and we were divvying up the, uh, the the chapters between us. The way it worked was that there were four of us working on the project: uh, Mike, Lynn Hardy, Paul, Fricker, and myself. And we decided that what we were going to do was. Take two chapters each to revise and rewrite, and then that left effectively one slot left over for one person to write a new introductory chapter. And so, yeah, I, I said, you know, that's what I really want to do more than anything else. Mm. And and yeah, that that was that that was like a dream come true for me. Yes, it was huge shoes to fill. But at the same time, yeah, it was just such a an opportunity to geek out and and sort of um, <laughs> do something that teenage me would have just given his right arm to do. Uh, that yeah, how could I say no? Well,
0: I mean, you you didn't say no. Luckily, it's funny because um, I played it back in the day as well. I seem to remember us dying a lot in Egypt when we did. Yeah.
1: <laughs> What just in Egypt? I, I, I think we lost four investigators per session. When I read, it. <laughs> being a bit generous, as they four per session.
0: <laughs> now, um, it's funny because I've, I've off, I think I've mentioned this to Mike Mason when I've seen him. That I, th- I think masks, as it stands now with the extra stuff, the extra stuff you've written, and the extra stuff based in Harlem, is the definitive edition.
1: Oh, good. Oh, I, I, I wrote the Harlem stuff as well. Um, oh,
0: did you?
1: Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. Yeah, I, I, my girlfriend at the time was very interested in the Harlem Renaissance and had done a lot of studying on that. And she told me a fair bit about the history of Harlem at the time. And I, I realised based on you know the the setting there that we had to bring at least some of that stuff in, some of the real history of Harlem. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert on that by any means, and yeah, you know, I'm I'm really glad that Chris Spivey. Well, for a start, read over the chapter afterwards and caught a lot of mistakes and fleshed stuff out. But also that, um, you know, he then tied in a lot of the stuff there with uh, Harlem Unbound and, you know, made it into much more of a sort of real vibrant place within the game
0: yeah because I, I often felt with the first introduction you get to, to the uh, the bloody tongue is just them being awful you never meet yeah. any anyone any any kind of African Americans there yeah that are like, like you know hard done by or like the good guys yeah and i thought it quite kind of addressed it quite well and i, I mean obviously having chris spivey after he's written harlem unbound read it. that must have helped enormously
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah
0: i mean that is a really good book as well yeah although i think it's the most i've ever paid in shipping for a kickstarter <laughs> do you don't want to know one how much <laughs> one i dread book, to think i 65 dollars
1: holy shit I know. (laughs) Did did you end up having to pay customs duty on top of that as well? I don't. I don't think I did. That's a small mercy.
0: Well, you know, I've got the first edition, so it's it's all good. Uh, yeah, so so as 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 of um, as I said, I can I consider the way it is now. I think anything more added to it would be pointless. Mm. I, th- I think it's a great campaign. Controversially, I think Impossible Landscapes is better, but that's a different conversation entirely. I,
1: I've yet to either read or play Impossible Landscapes, so I I have no opinion on this. <laughs>
0: oh, it, it's an absolute masterpiece. It's incredible. Oh, nice. Um, it's funny. You know, you said you ran it twice. Mm. This is something we we on and griff did as well because we were talking about it with um with, with dennis the Twiller. he's he's running it for the 10th time wow of the campaign and griff made the point that people think if you get a big campaign like that you, that they, you can only ever run it once
1: no no god no no I, that's the thing about i think rpg scenarios and campaigns in general that because Every group of players is going to approach them in a different way that I I think even if you tried, it would still end up playing differently every time, enough so that as a GM, you're going to face new challenges, have to be creative in different ways. And if you're the kind of GM who plays to see how things are going to turn out, and to see what crazy stuff the players are going to do, then yeah, it's, it, it's going to be endlessly entertaining.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, his initial first three playthroughs, from what I understand, because I've spoken to Denz quite a lot, not on the podcast, and he, he'd run it something like, he said six and a half times. I was wow. like, a, a half time? He said, oh, yeah, one of the groups had to fold and all that, but it allowed him to tweak things before release. But um, yeah, I. I I think you know, unless it's something huge and utterly daunting like the enemy within, you know, where it's like it's five books and five companions to do the full mm. campaign. Which, as luck would have it, Griff's about to start running for us.
1: <laughs> nice, yeah,
0: yeah. Mm. Um, the other the other thing, well, well not the other thing. One of the other things you've written was was it the case of Nineveh, the Cubicle Seven? Well,
1: yeah, I wrote I wrote one chapter in that. Yeah, that was right. a a large campaign, so. Yeah, there were a number of people who worked on that. Andrew Kenrick was the the main developmental editor on there. And then I think Mike Mason wrote two chapters. Paul Fricker wrote the final chapter. And there was someone else whose name I'm blanking on who wrote some of it. But, yeah, I, I just wrote one chapter, which right. is a bit of an oddball chapter. It doesn't necessarily fit the tone of the rest of the campaign, but it was something I really wanted to do, and I thought, sod it yeah this is the this is the excuse i've been looking for so this <laughs> I, I i decided i wanted to write a, a a scenario at some stage about louis wayne and so i did well I and mean, that's fine isn't it no because obviously i looked at your
0: your bibliography and i know you were the lead developer on um on world war cthulhu right?
1: yes yes I, I i was the line editor for world war cthulhu uh and uh yeah I, I did the i i didn't do the original world war Cthulhu, the darkest hour book but i did all the other books in the line yeah including the cold war books
0: i actually recently completed my collection of that
1: oh wow what do you manage to find a copy of uh our american cousins no i've had that i've had that a while oh wow well that that's like hen's teeth
0: i know yeah I, well i showed uh... Paul Mitchiner, you know Doctor Michener. and he said um, I, I contributed to that, <laughs> and I don't have a copy.
1: Yeah, I, he's not the only person who said that. I think Paul Fricker was in the same situation as well. I, I've got a copy as well, but I, I think I'm one of the few contributors got a copy. So Griff
0: has some good questions. I think he sent me. He sent me them, and I, thought, I remember thinking to myself, these are some nice juicy questions here.
1: <laughs>
2: so Griff, do you oh, want to do you want
0: to ask a couple now?
2: Yeah. Well. I've got a lot to ask. So so um yeah, it's just stuff that, that has always interested me about you because I came back to the hobby after a high hiatus. Mm. Hiatus. I should I should change the words so I don't start with <laughs> words. So you can say them, yeah. Literature. Yeah. <laughs> um and uh so, so I spent a bit of time um getting back into the hobby, finding out what cool stuff was going on. And yours is one of the names that cropped up. I think uh, the, there were raves about lampposts in bloom. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fairyland, yeah. Um, <laughs> which is something that is a thing of beauty. <laughs> and uh, Blizzard's Teeth. Oh, yes. Yes. Which was just as I'd come back in, I was loving seeing all these sort of new systems and sort of Tim Gray's PDQ stuff is mm. is really lovely. Oh, Yeah. So, so my questions are just getting to know you a little bit better. Mm. So yeah, I'm interested, Scott, in your metamorphosis, <laughs> uh, like a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> or a really dark moth. <laughs> or a dark moth. <laughs> Yeah, a death head moth. <laughs> from, from your sort of early days in gaming to actually developing into this beautiful, dark <laughs> moth of a game designer.
1: Mm. Uh, what, you mean how did it happen? Yeah, what was what, what's your sort of uh what my supervillain origin story? Yes. That's, that's oh, obviously superhero Scott. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> tomato Tomato. Um <laughs> so I I I've I've been gaming since the early eighties. I you know I started out as a teenager in oh god, about nineteen eighty-two or so.
0: Can I just pause there? I find it hard <laughs> to believe you were a teenager in nineteen eighty two.
1: Well, well you, you find it difficult to believe that I was ever a teenager, is that it?
0: <laughs> but I, I think you sprung from your mother as you are
1: now. <laughs> oh God! Oh no, no! I haven't, I haven't always been this grizzled, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I was an enthusiastic gamer throughout the nineteen eighties, particularly once I discovered Call of Cthulhu, but I. I, uh, while I pretty much from the word go was writing my own scenarios and you know, I mean obviously still reading and, and running a lot of published stuff, but mostly running my own stuff, it had never even occurred to me to try to write any of it up for publication. And looking back at some of that stuff in the 1980s, it's a bloody good job I didn't because it was terrible. But it, it, you know, it did at least give me experience of making stuff up. And certainly at that time, I wanted to be a writer. I I certainly started out trying to write fiction. I I, I published some fiction back in the 80s and 90s, but nothing anyone will ever remember. And what happened was I I, I sort of went into hibernation throughout the 1990s. I stopped gaming mainly because I, I moved to Milton Keynes and I hadn't found a gaming group here. But then in the early 2000s, I found the MKRPG group there, uh here rather and i got to meet a lot of people who were doing their own stuff and there's i mean people like uh james mullin and neil smith and um they, i mean i was about to say paul fricker but this was before he started publishing stuff and we we, we all sort of encouraged each other to some extent at the club and at the same time I started going to conventions in the UK and started running uh my my own stuff at cons for well in some cases for game designers in fact you know started running games for the people who'd actually written the games which was a, a weird and scary experience yeah I've been there <laughs> <laughs> and so that that, for a start gave me a bit of confidence, but it also led to the weird situation where some of these game designers would say, you know, I really like that game you ran. Uh, how do you fancy writing it up? And so that's how I came to publish things like Fairyland and my early stuff for Hot War and uh, got involved with Dead of Night and things like that. And uh, from there, I mean, Paul had started working on what would become Call of Cthulhu Seventh Edition, and so I helped out with that uh, editorially, and ended up writing. Uh, well, I ended up writing uh, uh, Blackwater Creek for the, the main rule book, but we decided that it wouldn't fit in there, and so that ended up going in the Keeper's Creed instead. Uh, but from there, yeah, it it just sort of snowballed. Um, around the same time, I got made redundant from my day job. So I just thought, yeah, of, I'll see if I can do this full time.
0: And do you do it full time? Yes,
1: no. Um, I don't do anywhere near as much writing as I used to, but I do a lot more podcasting. Uh, and that's in a lot of ways taken over from the writing. I, I mean, I still do write the occasional scenario, but it's nowhere near as much as I was doing, say,
2: 10 years ago. Mm, cool. So, what is it about horror in particular? And what what does it give you that other genres don't?
1: That is a really good question, and one that I have thought about an awful lot without ever coming to an adequate answer. And it's one that I tend to ask other horror fans and horror writers when I meet them. You know, this whole question of what draws us to horror. And the answer that I've had from a number of other people, which resonates with myself as well is that it's just the way our our imaginations work you know if i sit down and try to think a an idea for a story or a game or something like that my default mode is to come up with something dark and and terrific, just because you know, th- those are the ideas that occurs to me. And I mean, it's been like that since I was a kid. I was a morbid kid. I was always reading horror and and watching horror films from you know far too young an age. And yeah, it's 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 just what appeals to me. I I don't think I can rationalise it. It's just the way I'm wired.
0: It's funny you should say that because when we interviewed uh, Alex Galat a couple of weeks ago. He pretty much mm. said the same thing, you know. He watched horror movies that he shouldn't have been watching, you know. He read a lot of like nasty stuff, and as it turns out, he now kind of makes a living doing stuff for Mr. Repository, mm. Whether that be writings for things, whether that be doing art for people, he, he's making yeah. a living out of it. And it's funny how that it, it seems to be the ultimate gravitation, doesn't it? If you're if you're inclined towards these kind of things, you want to produce something of that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: I, it's <laughs> this is where you hear that old truism about do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life and if anyone ever tells you that punch them in the mouth uh oh that's a total <laughs>
0: lie it really job. Is, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah there, there is no better way to change your relationship with the hobby you love than to start doing it professionally <laughs> uh but yeah but, but on the other hand yeah if you can keep your enthusiasm for it and not everyone does then yeah it, it's it's rewarding in a different way but I, I would counsel people who sort of think that it's a, a dream job to come up with stuff like this for a living that you, know, you, you might be surprised at how it it changes how you feel about the hobby.
0: No, I get, I get that, to be honest. It's like the old idea that chefs don't Mm. want to cook when they get home, isn't it?
2: I was going to ask, uh, what are the films that you were watching (laughs) that you shouldn't have watched and that you can remember and what what did you read that you weren't supposed to read? Oh, I can remember three
1: really formative experiences as a kid. Uh, One was, I I think my mother realised fairly early on that I really liked spooky stories. And she bought me a copy of... Uh, Egrell and Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination, and I absolutely adored that book. And I, I think I read it when I was like eight or nine or something, and it just clicked with me. I just loved the oppressive atmosphere and the horrible stuff that was going on, the people murdering each other, and all that good stuff. And that that really clicked with me. And around the same time, my father bought me a copy of. Uh, Dennis Gifford's book, A Pictorial History of Horror Movies, which was this book about the history of horror cinema from the silent era up to, uh, it, it was published in the early 70s, so around that time. And I, I just remember spending hours looking at all the pictures and stills in that book and reading about all the people who made these amazing films and uh, realising I just wanted to see all of them. But the thing that I think had the most impact on me was when I was about 10 or 11, there was a series on British TV, which did mercifully find its way out to Hong Kong, so I I got to see it, which was uh, a a series called Beasts that was written by Nigel Neal of Quatermass fame. And it Mm. yeah it's not a well-known program but it's well worth seeking out all the episodes are on youtube so you can find them there and it's a it's six standalone stories all horror stories and the theme that goes through them is they're all somehow related to animals and there is one episode in particular called baby which is this folk horror piece set in the english countryside with a young couple moving into this old farmhouse and renovating it and finding something creepy walled up in in the kitchen and it was just such a, a shocking weird bit of television to see at that age that i think that more than anything else left me thinking oh yeah yeah in some capacity this is what i want to do so that's that's the origin story <laughs> explained and and you know what's really <laughs> weird about that i some years back, I went to a panel at the Alt Fiction Festival in Derby, and there were a number of fiction writers there on the panel who were talking about their formative experiences, and they were all about the same age as I am. Um, I'm trying to remember who they were. Uh, Tim Leban was certainly one of them. Uh, uh, Sarah Pimber, I think, was one. Um, and they were talking again about their formative experiences. And And one of them mentioned seeing this program on tv and they were describing it and one of the others piped up and said oh hang on that's that's the baby episode of beasts and they they went round and it turned out out of the four of them on the panel three of them had seen that at about the same age as i had and all three of them had been left with a lifelong love of horror as a result of it so i mean (laughs) that that for a bit of television that almost no one remembers that is such a formative thing for an entire generation
0: joe it's you know funny because when i was i've got a, i've got a story about this right when i was young my mum wouldn't let us watch i mean i'm i am the eldest of five boys right my mum would not let us watch anything horror related but there's two things I remember from my childhood that terrified me and still do. Tales of oh, the yeah. Unexpected, Royal Jelly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I, do you remember that one? Uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen the adaptation of it, but I remember reading the story as a kid, and again that freaking me out.
0: Yeah, and it was, it was, it was awful. But there was another, there was another show, and you—I've no doubt you remember this—Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Oh yes, yeah. Whenever I hear the music, I used to get scared. <laughs> But there was there was an episode on Bigfoot which showed, you know, the Patterson-Gimlin footage. And it was a shot. It was a photograph someone had taken of what they thought was some sort of cryptid ape. And it was like a monkey propped up by a <laughs> stick under its nose, under its jaw. And it just the way it was looking at the camera terrified oh. me. And even up until my teens, I used to go upstairs where we used to live and look along the land and expect to see it propped up against the door at <laughs> the end of the it, landing. It's
1: amazing the way just little images like that can really scare us as kids. I think as kids, yeah. you, all our emotions are so wide open in a way that they aren't as adults, and our brains are still developing yeah. and, and learning what is frightening. And little things can really set us off I when when I was young my parents at some stage visited uh some cathedral in the UK while we were on holiday and did some brass rubbings there and I remember they did a brass rubbing of this guy in uh full armor um you know, almost life size and it was in gold wax on a uh, a black paper background And they hung it up in our flat on the wall directly opposite my bedroom. And when I got up in the middle of the night to go for a pee, every night I'd open up that door and he'd be hanging there in the gloom staring at me. And I just became, it got to the stage where I was just absolutely terrified. I had nightmares about this night just hanging there. And then around that time, I read uh, E. Nesbitt's story, Man's Eyes and Marble, which just about broke me. (laughs)
0: Uh, do you know why I can completely sympathise because I had a similar thing with the spider <laughs> monkey. <laughs> oh my god! But it, it is funny because I remember the I remember there was an episode of um, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World about electronic oh, voice yeah. phenomena. And from the day the day I watched it, every noise <laughs> in the house was electric electronic voice phenomena. Even though it like it, it wasn't electric noise, it was like pipes yeah. and uh, bumps with the house settling and all that. I was just convinced it was voices from the from from the the, the speaking to me. But it is definitely funny how how them young experiences can oh God, shape yeah. you,
1: yeah,
0: isn't it? So let's talk about. Um, I know Griff wants to talk to you about mm. Fairyland.
2: I do. It, it's about your work. The thing that I really love is there's horror. People know what horror gaming is, but you seem to have covered like a fair raft of the different subgenres. And um so so we've got Fairyland, which is uh, folk horror, uh, mythos, mythos. Um, and Blizzard's teeth is sort of a, a really superb action-packed survival horror game. and Lampost in Bloom, I think it's quite hard to classify. it's it's psychological horror mm. with a touch of the yeah, occult. yeah, I think
1: that's that's a fair summation.
2: And um and I see similar setups in them as well. Uh, really, I mean, they're all fantastic setups. They're sort of relationship tinderboxes. boxes. All the pre gens that go in have got a lot of reason to go with each <laughs> other when things kick off. I I was just wondering, um, do do you have a favourite sub genre? So is is there a sub genre of horror that sort of attracts you mo- <laughs> most? Uh, ooh. I
1: think it's probably easier to talk about what doesn't appeal to me so much because uh, I. It's interesting. I was listening to your discussion with uh, Seth Skorkowski earlier, and I, I, Seth and I have talked about this before. We, while we love a lot of the same horror and the same kinds of horror games, I think we have almost polar opposite views of what we like out of horror gaming, which is Seth is all about investigation. Hmm. He loves investigative games. And personally, I'd be very happy if I'd never played another investigative game in my life. Um, I think investigation is a useful conceit for getting into games, but what I really like is is the more survival horror type. And I, yeah, I guess survival horror would be my favourite genre. I prefer, well, I prefer situations where the characters are in a situation that is tied to them, that they're not just kind of outside investigators that. Uh, picking through a mystery that where there is investigation, they have real stakes involved with that, whether it's to save themselves or to save other people. It's not just, um, you know, here's a mystery, let's solve it. It's more, let, let's get to the bottom of, of this, otherwise it will destroy us.
0: So the, the other thing he wants to talk about was um, Blizzard's teeth. Mm. What did you want to know about that, Griff?
2: Yeah, I... I... Tim Gray sat on it for, was it three years? Well, Blizzard's teeth.
1: No, he he put that out, I think, fairly shortly after I sent him the manuscript. In the foreword, that's what he says. Did he? Uh, I don't remember that. Says, yeah. <laughs> so maybe he did raise Avalon?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think so, yeah. I I I
1: don't remember that at all. I, oh gosh! Yeah, I mean, I, it could be. It could be that I am. Uh, yeah, I, I'm getting on a bit, folks. I mean, I
2: <laughs> my, my memory ain't great. So I read this bit, and I was thinking, crikey! And you'll see what my question. Why my question is what it is. <laughs> it says here I actually played this adventure with Scott at a con. I forget which one. A little later, he dropped me a line with a write-up he'd found time to do, and then I sat on it for three years. Ah, okay. With good intentions to do something with it, mind, but nevertheless depriving you of more jawsy goodness. (laughs) Finally, here it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I don't remember there being that delay. I do remember that
1: I ran it for Tim, oh, I think at Continuum, like over 10 years ago, almost probably more like 15 years ago. But yeah, I don't remember it, it taking that long to come out. But then again, in RPG publishing, everything takes a long time to come out. I, I've I've had, I've had books I've worked on that have taken five years to come out from what I put the manuscript in. Wow, it's
0: funny that because when we spoke to Dennis, he was very much of the, it'll be ready when it's ready, mm. and and that's, that's something I buy into with, with the way me and Alex are working at the moment. We know we should have done something to follow out the success of viral but it's not read, it's not right so we're not mm. doing it i'd rather release something late and good than early and bad
1: i think that's a real luxury you get when you self publish yeah i suppose that you don't necessarily get when you're working for publishers because they've got schedules to keep to and when they give you a deadline it's generally because you know they've got other stuff in the pipeline and they want to make sure that stuff keeps moving So, yeah, I I agree. I much prefer working like that. But it's a luxury that I think very few RPG writers get.
0: Hmm. Because it's funny, isn't it, you should say that, because that being the case, if you're given deadlines, why is everything always so bloody late? Nothing. Well, I mean, for, for example, nothing ever comes out on time
1: because there's a lot of things that need to happen after the manuscript goes in, from editorial to layout to commissioning artwork to <laughs> uh, to the actual printing process and distribution. That all takes a lot of time.
0: But it, it's it's funny though, isn't it? Because. When we were when we, obviously when we spoke to Dennis, that's one of his big bugbears, and he said that's why we just don't give a date anymore. Yeah, we just say it'll be ready when it's ready. So, c- before we go on about uh, is it is it lamppost or Lamp Light in bloom? Lampposts, lampposts in bloom, right? Keith from the Tittipig said he he's played this and you ran it. At oh, a, right. At one of the recent good friends, oh, yes, yeah, weekends. And he said it was one of the best games he'd ever played. Oh, nice! Un- or Unironically, he said it was incredible. Oh, wow! And and I don't want to know how it is because I
1: want you to run it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be very happy to.
0: Because I don't know whether you remember, a couple of months ago on Twitter, you said you'd run something for me.
1: Oh yes, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I said I will hold you to that. Well, I'd like to play that. I don't want anything about it. Yeah. But that's one I would like to play if you ever get to, get a group to run it. Okay.
1: But, yeah, I will warn you. It. It's a game that comes with all the content warnings. Think of a content warning; it's in there.
0: <laughs> oh no! Absolutely fine. Listen, you're you're going to be playing Inversion soon. Play in my next scenario, and I there were times I was reading it shaking my head. It's that bad. <laughs> it's just Alex's one twisted man.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, there's. I've had the experience a few times of writing something and then looking back at it and thinking, where the hell did that come from? Oh, God, oh, God, why did I do that? <laughs> so, Griff, without, without talking about
0: it, can you can you skate around what it's about? Yes. Okay. Well, the
2: thing I love about lampposts, well, there's there's a lot of things that I really like about it, one thing it comes back to—we um, were talking about it previously—the relationship Tinderbox, mm. and the, the, there is a mystery, and the uh, there are multiple mysteries, and the mysteries are contained within the characters that are interacting. Yeah, and they're not nice. <laughs> it's quite—it's quite psychological. Um, I could imagine um, players falling out with each other if they played played in character because sort of it's quite quite dark oh yeah i I, know the the, the
1: first convention game i ran of it i the it's not that they fell out but it was it was one of the weirdest convention games i've ever run it was at one of the south coast conventions i think it was conception one of the conventions where we basically played in a holiday camp that had lots of lodges and we took over one of the lodges to play this uh, group of five players and me and it it turned into an impromptu larp in that the the players were sort of breaking off and scheming in different groups and talking to each other, having intense conversations, using the layout of the lodge and stepping outside into different rooms and people putting their ears up against doors to try to overhear conversations. (laughs) And at one point we had two characters come to blows and the players literally rolled around on the floor, mock fighting as this happened. And it
2: it was just amazing. (laughs) That's what I was wondering i was wondering i was good my question was going to be how many times did you run it before you got a punch up <laughs> but it's the first the first time yeah yeah it is a it is
1: a scenario that does predispose itself to murder
0: <laughs> you don't get to say that very often
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it it, it it really is a thing of beauty it reminded me of a a, a, a lot of what we've talked about previously i definitely picked up that sort of oppressive psychological atmosphere that we've talked about. Oh, nice. And our, it's very, very British. Mm. It, it's, it, it reminded me a lot of, there's elements of sort of sapphire and steel and sort mm. of really weird things happening. And it reminded me of a really great episode of something like Hammer House of Horror i was thinking Oh, yeah it's it's like an un uh, like an unbroadcast version of it
1: yeah i my pitch for it is usually been uh mike lee making a film based on a script by clive barker
2: that's very good very yes <laughs> so where did the, where did the inspiration for that come from was it literally from seeing a lamppost in bloom in real life
1: <laughs> sort of um it's difficult to discuss without spoilers uh, but I I I couldn't explain the origins of it without spoiling it to some degree for Bud.
2: Well, you can you can tell me we'll, we'll take it offline.
0: Yeah, so stop asking, Griff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yes, yeah, I'll, I'll happily answer that elsewhere.
0: <laughs> Your pair of swines.
2: Talk, talking of that, my, my next question. I th- that would be an absolutely cracking novel, and um, and we've spoke previously about the fact that you 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 wrote some um, novels back in the day. Is it something you're tempted to come back to? Because there is a lovely um, synergy quite often with uh, master horror designers and writing really good horror fiction. Um, is that something that you you'd be willing to explore again? I, I've never entirely given up writing fiction, but.
1: I did come to the conclusion a few years back that I'm really not very good at it i uh, i've I've never been happy with any fiction I've written. Not that I'm overly delighted with the RPG stuff I've written, but I tend to be a lot less critical at that and I think i I don't know the way that. My creative process works. I've discovered over the years lends itself much more to RPG writing and creating situations rather than full stories. So, no, I, I, yeah, I, I, I can see. I, I've, I, I've sometimes thought that Lamperson Bloom could be an interesting thing to convert into a TV's or a film script, but, Definitely. but at the same time. I don't think I really want to. I, it's it's just not something I think I'd enjoy doing, and it's not something I think I'd be very good at.
2: Well, may, maybe one of our um, many, many listeners is in the film industry, and mm-hmm. I'll take you up on that offer. Because it, 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 you, you're in for an absolute treat, Bud, and um, it's a pity if you do play it virtually – because it would be quite good to get somebody by the throat, I think.
1: But
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't think Scott ever goes to any of the conventions I go to. I'm, I'm hoping for the day that he comes to Grog Meet. Yeah, um, because Paul Fricker does. There's no excuse.
1: <laughs> well, my excuse, my excuse is that I almost never leave my house. I, I am, a classic shut-in. I, I go out to the shops maybe once every couple of months, and that's it.
0: Well, I mean. I mean, I'm I'm tearing into a bit of a shit, if I'm being honest. I think it's COVID that did it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that was certainly yeah. it for me. That that changed the way I live my life. And yeah, I I don't really go to in-person conventions anymore. That said, I am supposed to be going to the Innsmouth Literary Festival uh, later this year. So we'll see how that goes.
0: Well, I hope to see you at a convention someday.
2: Yeah, likewise. Well, I've got I've got one on. question left that's been burning. Mm. Creatively, what's your undiscovered country? Where where would you like to explore in your sort of writing and your design? Oh gosh,
1: uh, I would very much like to do more stuff that's not horror. I've not written much science fiction, despite the fact that it's one of my favourite genres as a reader, and I do keep wanting to to do some of that the closest i've got is my friend malcolm Craig did this game well, about 20 years ago called hot war which is one of my favorite games which is this post-apocalyptic uh, old history game set in 1963 britain after uh, the cuban missile crisis went hot and it's a a game filled with weird science and horrors but it's it is still fundamentally a science fiction game and I had a lot of fun writing for that, but I've not really done any SF since then, and I, I keep, I, I keep wanting to do something that just explores weird ideas like that. I, as, as well as horror, the other big influence on me as a teenager was the the new wave science fiction of the 1960s I, I grew up reading that stuff not in the 1960s i'm not quite that old but um yeah
0: it says you
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a precocious reader but i wasn't reading that stuff when i was five um but uh yeah it, i i i very much want to try to do something along those lines but i've never quite
2: worked out the vehicle uh for doing that
1: hmm.
2: would you ever be tempted to write your create and build your own vehicle write your own vehicle no i
1: i don't think uh my brain works in the right way to be a game designer i mean I, I i'm a scenario writer certainly and i've written kind of campaign settings and and all sorts of fluff but aside from a few rules modifications here and there I've never really done any system design, and again, I, I don't think that's something that particularly interests me. I'd much rather work with a system someone else has done, and and maybe just hack it into what I need.
2: Okay, or or could you take the approach that you took in Fairyland? Because I mean, Fairyland's quite, but it's not exactly system neutral. There's the, it's system mm. suggested, isn't it in yeah. places? Could you could you take that sort of approach? Uh, maybe. Um
1: yeah I I I'm I'm one of these people who really likes game mechanics for the way that they can shape narrative so mm. I I mean even with Fairyland I wrote that very specifically for Cthulhu Dark because of the way Cthulhu Dark's written there aren't any game mechanics built into it so That means that, yeah, as you say, you can pick that up and run it with just about any system because, yeah, that's just the way the mechanics work. But when I'm writing stuff, I I do, I, I think it's a function of the way that I develop uh, scenarios, in that I, I develop scenarios through play. Um, My, my process is that I start off with a loose idea put together a list of bullet points in a relationship map, then take it to a bunch of friendly players who don't mind too much if the game sucks, and then just play to see what happens. I'll do that a few more times, honing it, and then that, that will turn into something, if I'm lucky, that I can publish. And it's through that engagement with the game mechanics and the unexpected twists and turns that come up through you know lucky and unlucky dice rolls and people using skills and abilities in unexpected ways that shows me what what it is that i'm running if that makes any sense yeah uh so yeah i mean that, that that's such an essential part to me that i'm not sure that i'd ever really write something system neutral i may write it using something like cthulhu dark or you know, a similar system that's so rules-light that what you see on the page doesn't necessarily seem to reflect game mechanics. But but that wouldn't be the way I'd think of it in my mind.
0: I mean, system-neutral things are something I, I genuinely dislike because, you know, I, I think with some scenarios and things like that, you can intrinsically tie the mechanics of the game to make the scenario fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but have you, ever, have you ever read Pax Cthuliana?
2: i uh, i do not. No. That's no a, I don't think so.
0: It's a system neutral Call a Cthulhu one that was kickstarted, and it's actually pretty good. And I, I remember reading it and thinking, there's a number of kind of Lovecraftian systems you could make work mm. for this because it doesn't really tie anything, but it ties the lore like quite well. It's it's about it's a scenario about um, Cthulhu emerges from the Thames, <laughs> and sends a tidal wave all over. Um, all over the UK. Okay. It, it was it was it was one of the few system neutral things I've ever read that I thought mm. was pretty good, and I think it, it was more down to the law being intrinsically tied to how you imagine the game than a system mechanic being important. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I mean, you see Cthulhu, you know what you're gonna <laughs> you know we're gonna get. With yes. Instant death or a D hundred loss.
2: <laughs> so the question is, Bud, mm-hmm. how far did the tidal wave go? Would I be safe in Lemington Spa?
0: Um. It wiped out London, so, yeah. That's a probably. shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a shame didn't wipe out Leamington Spa, it's a shame that it wiped out London.
2: You, you know, if if a tidal wave was to wipe out anywhere in Britain, um, I would I would hope Leamington Spa would be quite low on the list. <laughs>
0: uh, I mean, that's a very specific desire, isn't it? <laughs> and, and
2: also, while there are a lot of people that I do know and like in London, there's an awful lot of people live there that I don't <laughs> like.
1: Uh, well, it, if nothing else, it's made me feel grateful for living about as far inland in the UK as you can live. Well, do you live yeah. in the yeah. Midlands? Well, I you? live in Milton Keynes, which oh, is... Milton Keynes, yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Smack in the middle of England.
0: <laughs> so I've got I've got a question for you with regard to um, Call mm. of Cthulhu. I was wondering what you thought on it. Um, do you think Call of Cthulhu 7th edition neuters call of cthulhu as it was originally intended
1: no no not at all the two biggest complaints i remember from the playtest feedback which are the ones that keep coming up over and over again when people talk about that are the luck mechanic and pushing roles and my experience of running a lot of seventh edition is that neither of those make the game any safer they they both at their heart sort of traps more than anything else in that they make you feel like you've got more control but at the same time it's it's very much a sort of monkey's paw situation with with luck yeah you can spend points of luck and pass some of those crucial roles that you otherwise would have failed and that's great and i think you know it's sometimes worth having that limited resource whereby you know if if you really care about that role you can pass it but if you've got an absolute bastard of a keeper like me then at some point after you've spent all that luck they are going to make you roll luck for something really important (laughs) and so yeah, it's like selling your soul. You're getting temporary, you're getting temporary gain, but long term you're going to pay for it.
0: Yeah, because as as a system for horror, I I think Delta Green is a better system. But it's, it's really clever how they've done it. The idea that you have willpower, but yeah, you have bonds, which while you're outside of, you're outside of like you know whatever investigation you're in, they restore your humanity hmm. somewhat. And and when bad things happen, you can offset the sand loss by reducing your bonds, mm. and it's quite it's, it's quite clever. And you kind of you do pay for it in the long run, just in a different way. But I I think, I mean, just from a, a, a personal perspective, I think luck has taken some of the kind of some of the smoke of the danger away from me, because as someone who played, mm. you know, I think the first edition I played of Call of Cthulhu was third, the Games Workshop one, and it was ruthless. Mm. Which, which i think was the entire point
1: yeah i think there's a, a, a sort of broader philosophical question there about what makes uh, a horror game frightening and i don't necessarily buy the idea that arbitrary death which is i think fundamentally what we're talking about here makes a game more frightening In fact, I'd argue that in a lot of cases it actually undermines the horror. And this goes back to my experiences of running things like Masks of Nyarlathotep in the the 80s, which is if you're playing a character and you know they've got a very limited shelf life, if you know that one wrong role at the wrong time is going to be guaranteed death, then it makes it very difficult to invest in that character. And if you don't invest in that character, it's going to be difficult for you to find the game horrifying. And what I think the more recent editions of Call of Cthulhu do is mitigate that slightly. So you may be able to spend luck and hold off that death from a lucky blow from some assailant that you're fighting, for example, and perhaps even survive that fight, albeit injured. But you're depleted at the end of it, and your character is getting steadily worn down. But more to the point, you've got longer, perhaps, to engage with that character's story and see their decline and see the the additional horrors they face. And that ends up feeling... I I think in the long run, more horrific than, oh, yeah, Professor X is dead. Right. um, Let's have Professor Y now. Yes. Same character, same (laughs) stats, different name. Right. um, How are we going to introduce him to the party? Bang, let's go.
0: So would it be fair to describe it as an illusion of safety?
1: I think so, because the things that make the game horrific, the sense of threat and the the nightmares that the characters are going to face and the personal cost and so on that's all still there and a lot of times then still with an unlucky set of dice rolls the characters are going to die so there's still a real mortal threat there it's just perhaps mitigated somewhat so i think all the elements that make the game horrific are i are still very much there, yeah.
0: I've got, I've got an interesting aside here about, um, I first ran viral for the very first time ever at, um, it was a Grog Meet 2021. Mm. And one of my players was Paul Fricker. And in the ultimate act of irony, he was killed by his own rule. <laughs> <laughs> because he failed his sand, but you can't spend luck to, to increase a sand roll.
1: Oh, nice.
2: <laughs> and so, so it was his own rule that eventually topped him off. Oh, uh, brilliant. I, I I very much do like the um, pushed mm. roll mechanic. I think I, the, the one thing that took me a little bit of time to get used to, it's a little bit like your, um, you know, spend now, pay later, but compress. Yeah. So that if you can, you can push a roll, but the cost of pushing a roll is going to be fairly nasty. Yeah. And once i realized that i w- i could refuse people pushing roles if i couldn't think of something grim <laughs> to happen
0: i mean that's the whole point though isn't it the idea yeah. that if you push a roll yeah. and fail you make the situation worse
1: absolutely
2: yes and I, I think it should be i think it should be at least like a nail in the eye worse <laughs> not ah oh, you might have alerted the guards no that's not that's not a push yeah. roll for me it is it's catastrophic.
1: Yeah. yeah, yes. Yeah, I, I really like that mechanic because it does, as a GM, give you permission to completely screw over the characters. You, it's it's not just the implicit permission that you have, just being a horror GM anyway, but it's the player explicitly giving you permission. It's sort of saying, right, you're here. I'm going to make the second dice roll. And if I fade on this, give me hell and i i love that dynamic and i love playing with people who really embrace that and i I some of the people i play with particularly on ain't slayed nobody i really love that mechanic so much because well to the extent where they're disappointed when they pass a pushed roll because they they (laughs) just really want that bad thing to happen
2: do you, when you've played widely with people, find there's certain people that will just use luck and certain people that, that have got the balls, <laughs> so to speak, to go, you know what? I'm going to go straight for a pushed roll. Uh, I I don't
1: think I've ever encountered anyone who just solely uses luck. Um, I think everyone I can think of who I've played with uses some combination thereof.
0: I mean, is this mostly by convention play? Oh,
1: uh, yeah, convention play, but also I mean, I I run uh, Cthulhu games for uh, a, a couple of different podcasts, including ongoing campaigns, and um, yeah, I, I I don't know. Perhaps with actual plays, it's a bit different because people are trying very much to create an experience that's interesting for people to listen yeah. to, and so perhaps you might play in. In more suboptimal ways than you would as a player in a straight game, but at the same time, yeah, people and people I find really, really lean into those beautiful moments of disaster.
0: Yeah, it's something we were discussing recently, wasn't it, Griff, about the idea that whenever you've got a story to tell about a game, it's it's almost always two things. It's either when you catastrophically failed at something so bad that it yeah. made an interesting story, or you had yeah. unbelievable luck on your side. It's both ends of the scale. They mm. they create the best stories.
2: Yeah. And when you write a rule that gets your aunt out to kill the commercial game you play in the future.
0: You call it the irony mm-hmm. rule from now on. <laughs> um, yeah, so... But, but obviously the answer to the, the, the original question was, no, you don't believe it as new today. But it'd be fair to say that it's, it creates the illusion of safety when it's not really there. It's just buying them time, really, isn't it?
1: it well, it's more than that. I think it just creates more opportunities for horror. Both of them do in different ways, and you know, certainly as a as a GM, I find them both such incredibly useful tools to use from my side of the table. That yeah, I, I absolutely love them. Fair enough. So next question,
2: Griff. What have you got? What else have you? Got? I know you've got about eight pages left. <laughs> so Scott, at the at the moment, have you have you got any? convention games that you're running that you think that you're sort of working through with people that might eventually end up being public.
1: yeah a few um yeah there's one i've run a few times at conventions the call of cthulhu scenario which i think is about ready to write up uh called the way of all flesh
0: that sounds
1: good yeah it's one of the nastier things i've written um (laughs) I certainly in terms of just sheer gore and body horror. Uh and the, the, the other thing I there's a series of scenarios that I've been working on, oh gosh, for fifteen years. Series of linked scenarios that I I, I keep sort of chipping away at in writing up. And I, I may finish them one day. I, I hit a bit of a setback on them some years back. It's a, a series of convention scenarios I've called Time and Tide, which I I started, yeah, like I say, running about 15 years back with a scenario called Time and Tide. And I've, I've fleshed it out since then. And the, the basic premise of it is it's about the Deep Ones of Innsmouth after the, the fall of Innsmouth and it's it's basically a different setup a, a different scenario in each decade of the 20th century after the fall of Innsmouth um you know, following the the deep one diaspora uh as they uh, find ways of you know, coexisting or living in human society and just you know asking the question you know is history doomed to repeat itself and I, yeah, I, I, really, I really want to get round to finishing writing all that up. But the the problem I had with it was about five years ago. I read a novella uh, called The Litany of Earth by Ruthanne Ambrose, which has got almost exactly the same premise, and she did such a good job of it that I i I just haven't been able to shake the fear that if i ever write it all up then you know i'm just going to face accusations of plagiarism
2: well, that's that's such a shame i mean there's parallels sort of hmm. evolution isn't it? i mean this and i think it could be the fact that it's such a good idea that it's attracting designers and writers like magnets because it needs to be explored this idea
1: yeah maybe so i i don't know i'm i may finish writing that up someday if if i can rekindle my
2: enthusiasm <laughs> so so how many so you said that was um sort of different yeah. decades uh, how what what sort of so, so that would be from sort well, from of the 1920s
1: the, through to uh, the start of the 21st century start of the 21st century
2: i mean if it's any encouragement the longer you leave it the more snarled <laughs> you have <to> have, <laughs> <that? laughs> so you've got I don't know what year it is. I think it's 23. Uh, the, it?
1: the Innsmouth of Raid in The Shadow of Innsmouth is the end of 1927, start of 1928.
2: Yeah, and it's 2023 <laughs> now. So you've got seven years before you'd have to add another decade. Right? <laughs> so I better get a move on.
1: So uh,
0: another question, actually, this I've, I've, been, I've spent all day working, but I was thinking of things I could ask you. It's something we've also touched on with Dennis, and it's something we've done a whole podcast on. Which is about the horror of artificial intelligence.
1: Oh god, yeah. I was yeah.
0: wondering what your take on that would be.
1: <laughs> I I actually wrote an article about that a couple of years back for an art magazine called Trebuchet. Oh, did you? Um, yeah. <laughs> I the 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 article I wrote was about. Uh, it it was it was a rather cheeky playful article that was about the weird artifacts and hallucinations that were happening in ai at the time particularly in early versions of um of, of ai generated art and and the early versions of gpt creating weird text and yeah my my playful take on it was you know one day one of these things is going to go wrong in such a way that it's actually going to create a genuine Lovecraftian horror um but but I mean these days I mean I yeah, you know, I think like everyone else I've been playing around an awful lot with AI tools recently and seeing what they can do and now they're frightening me for different reasons <laughs> uh,
0: yeah it's the idea they can pop people out of work it's kind exactly. of the most frightening yeah. You know, and it's creative types were always the people who would always find, find work because they were uniquely creative more often than not. You know, I suppose someone working in a factory, not that this is anything that was against working people working in factories because someone's got to do it. Yeah. But people who work in factories, you can imagine a robot doing just a repetitive thing then, day and day out, but to be genuinely creative, but it, but it's not genuine. It's, it's counterfeit creation, really, isn't
1: it? Yeah. But the problem is for a lot of, creative enterprises that's good enough i mean it's already good enough and it's going to get better so you've got the situation where already you've got you know people using ai generated art in publications you've got advertising copywriters and people who write content for blogs and websites losing work because people are getting gpt to to write the same content and it is good enough you've got the case recently like a few weeks back there's an audiobook publisher that announced that they were sacking all their narrators and replacing them with ai generated voices because again that's good enough at the moment for the kinds of stuff they're doing and the, these are just the beginning days of this what, yeah, it's, what it's, it's,
0: it's months old at this point isn't
1: it yeah And what frightens me is that, you know, for example, Microsoft is bringing out a new version of Office that's got a lot of GPT-related stuff built into there, and it will be able to do stuff like create spreadsheets and VB code and uh, SQL code and stuff like that just from prompts. And sure, you know, these are the early stages of it, and you'd be a fool to use any of this stuff and not check it over. But I imagine pretty quickly companies are going to be able to see that, oh, yeah, we've got, you know, half a dozen people here managing our finance spreadsheets and so on, but... Yeah, if if we just keep Bob there and get him to get him to put in these prompts and check the work afterwards, we don't need the other five guys. Yeah, that's that's a scary prospect, isn't it? Yeah, and and I don't think we as a society are ready for that. If we end up in a situation where this disruptive technology comes along and puts, I mean, let's be conservative to say twenty or thirty percent of the
2: workforce out of a job mm. things are going to fall apart fast oh yeah absolutely yeah i think something you said there as well struck a chord um that i would not really thought about before which is when you said good enough you know this is yeah. good enough whether i mean if you're the producer of content you're sort of defining what's good enough and i'm wondering what happens when you end up with a situation where people set the bar low enough that AI can creatively do it and get away with it. Mm. What's that like? And and because essentially you could just have a sea of good enough stuff. And then there'll be stuff that I don't think can be written or created by AI. There's just some stuff that is so beautiful. I think a human mind has to have been involved in it at some stage. Mm. And that's just going to get lost lost in a sea of average
1: yeah but th- there's also the middle ground where i mean, let's say you know i decide i wanted to write a call of cthulhu scenario using chat gpt and i go to chat BT- gpt and i put in a prompt write me an outline for a call of cthulhu scenario i've done this a few times just to see what it would come up with and you know it, it comes up with stuff like there is a cult they want to summon a great old one the investigators must stop them or you know you you, you're traveling through the creepy old town of Innsmouth it's full of fish people (laughs) and you know so it's nothing nothing that's going to put any of us out of work yes um but if you are McCannier with the prompts and you start putting you know a few creative ideas in there what it can then do is turn that into usable text pretty quickly. So what it perhaps allows people to do is churn out stuff a lot faster that is maybe not great, but average. And, and let's face it, most of the stuff that's published is average.
0: That's to be fair, yeah. Do you know what's funny, right? Paul McCartney announced today that he was going to release one final album, didn't he? He did. And it's going to be a Beatles album created with artificial intelligence. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, and I was I was gutted that he, he's he never mentioned it to me.
0: <laughs> well, you used to be in the in the uh, the Beatles, didn't you? I, I used to be in the Beatles,
2: <laughs> as everybody knows.
0: The thing is, it goes back to what you were saying. Good enough. Mm. The Beatles were never good enough. Mm. The Beatles, are, whether they love them or hate them, everything they did, they excelled. Her. They were one of the best. And but, can I, all because all AI is going to do is take what they've written and work something out from that. But that was never the Beatles; they always came up with new ideas.
1: But I think there are two different things here that AI are used for, and it's important not to conflate them. One is the 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 generation of creative content of text of pictures of stuff like that, and yeah, I mean that's. That's always got to be derivative just by the nature of the way it's created. But the other thing it can be used for that is very different is in, you know, for example, replicating voices, replicating faces and so on, where there's still a human driving intelligence behind it telling you what to do. But you're using right. it as a tool to sort of fill in the blanks or create tools or you know instruments that that wouldn't exist otherwise so you know if for example paul mccartney i don't know how he's doing this project but if for example he is writing the songs himself but then using the ai tools to the voices of uh, you know say john lennon and george harrison or to perhaps you know enhance some of the guitar sounds so that you know someone plays a riff but the ai then tweaks it so that it sounds more like george harrison played it then that that's a very different thing
0: yeah i kind of see your point with that yeah because he wouldn't just be doing it to create it he'd be doing it to to recreate the sound wouldn't yeah he? hmm It'd Be interesting to hear what it sounds like that won't it
1: yeah I, I i find it difficult to be too enthusiastic about it but well we'll see <laughs>
2: I mean, it could be fantastic. Well, see, because I think it, there will be, if there are hardcore Beatles fans, apart from the fact they'd know all the Beatles songs, <laughs> so they'd know this is the one John Lennon is being recreated on. I'm wondering if they'd be able to tell. And I'm I'm pretty sure that a, a, a somebody who really loves the Beatles will, will have an, an maybe even indefinable, because we're humans, we're trained to spot fakes. Mm. We're not brilliant at it. I'm wondering whether they'll go that doesn't sound quite right but i yeah. think
1: i think when it comes to things like voice synthesis we're already there to some extent so mm-hmm. for example there was a news story a few weeks back where someone was um was conned out of money because a criminal with a voice synthesizer managed to sample someone's voice and put together an AI that sounded just like that person and then used it to basically uh, phone up the parents of this person and say that, you know, they were in trouble and needed money and could you wire, you know. 200 pounds or whatever uh to this bank account number and and it worked because the quality of that voice duplication was good enough that it fooled the person's parents so yeah i I think i think we're there when it comes to technology like that
0: it's the thing is though that that was that was kind of more on them than anything else wasn't it because anything like that you would become instantly suspicious wouldn't you or or maybe it's just me i would be instantly suspicious i've told my kids. If anyone ever says, your dad said, come with me, there's a word they need to know. Yeah. And if they don't know that word, they're lying because I haven't told them it. So all, all it would have taken to get past that was, what's the secret word?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I saw a good, there was a good story on Twitter and just to, to cut it short, somebody took a Zoom call where there was a, a, a man, a Russian gentleman speaking and they'd pre-warned him. Ahead of time go in Uh, He'll be using a translator And it'll be auto-translated at the bottom of the screen Sort of of what he's actually Mm. saying And it took about four and a half minutes For the guy to work out that it was a real-time deep fake See, they're scary This was a a known Russian um, sort of face in his field A a, a guy in politics And it it did take him a little while Before he sort of sussed it out And this was real-time but a saying that goes
1: around any discussion in AI circles about this stuff, which is that the you know, at the moment, it's as bad as it's ever going to be. I, it's only going to get better. The technology is, is only going to get better from this stage. So if we're at the stage where you know, it took four and a half minutes for this guy to work out this was a fake, then give it a year and... Yeah, you may not be able to.
2: And then, of course, there's the, the real nightmare is when it just becomes general mm. use, because th- there's one thing being wrang- rung up by a scammer and them trying to get money out of you. And another thing where it's, you know, a mate having a yeah. laugh deciding they're going to play with your brain uh, by getting an- another friend to phone up and talk rubbish to you or Accuse you of having an affair with the wife, or saying I've had an affair with the wife, and it's when it when it comes into sort of pub, the public domain, and it's really easy to get your hands on a really cheap. And easy well,
1: not even individuals. What what's going to be scary is over the next few years, as AI generated video becomes easier, seeing how that shapes political disinformation. And yeah. Yeah, I yes. honestly, I'd say. Between that and the, you know, the potential for mass unemployment that this could bring in, I mean, that's not a given that, you know, people may put safeguards in in time, but for all we know, we could be looking at huge unemployment within a few years as a result of these tools. Between that and the ability to, you know, control the political narrative in in new and dangerous and convincing ways... (sighs) I mean, we could be looking at a
2: very scary future. <laughs> yeah, especially because, like like you said, the, the tech is approaching and moving at a really super mm. fast rate. Um, Writing safeguards and laws and getting a handle on what needs to be in place to protect people, that's a slow process. Yeah. That's something that doesn't get done very quickly. I'm
0: waiting for the first a- AI-caused murder. That makes people start mm. taking it a bit seriously, won't it? Yeah. But, I mean, the thing is, the governments are going to have to jump in at some point and go, you know, you can't just create 30% unemployment in this country to make things cheaper, going to tax you to death if you do that, but they won't do that.
2: The trouble is we live in a global a global mm. world, don't we? So you, you can set your laws locally, but it doesn't matter if, you know, you got Singapore on sea, where Singapore does what it wants with its tax. It generates a competitive advantage. I don't think you'll ever get everybody, every country on the planet to sign up to AI safeguards. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's the problem with anything like this. And that, it, you know, if you're not careful, it becomes a race to the bottom as, you know, different countries co- compete with each
2: other. Mm. And I think it's one thing people haven't really um, got a handle of with AI yet, that it's not the matrix people should be worried about. It's just life becoming super shit. Yeah. And yeah. That in some ways that's even worse. If you like you said, mass unemployment, the living in a post-truth age, yeah. a, a morass of average.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm not worried about Skynet. But that that's 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 not going to be what gets us. What 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 will get us if we're not careful is mass unemployment and political disinformation leading to a rise of fascism and war
0: and then hopefully the machines will come around and just wipe us all off the map and then that'll sort it <laughs> anyway. do you know what them. maybe we are the machines from the future <laughs> and and,
2: and sort of oh. the shame with all of this is you know that there are really difficult Problems that AI could be Mm. used to solve that would really help, like climate change. You know, there's got to be a a role somewhere for AI to help solve that. And there's a lot of really difficult biology problems, particularly at the quantum level, that you're thinking AI might be something we could use to tackle. This, and it's just going to be scammers.
0: But it's what, but it's what you were talking about when we talked about it, though, Griff the the problem you face with with ai is the integrity of data and there are still people who deny climate change hmm. you know so you know when you're saying about the um, the astrophysics paper someone had written except one of the sources was just completely made up <laughs> yeah so then when when, when yeah, you and... when you get this this you know get chat gpt to write your, write your uh, proposal on how to solve climate change it's going to pull disinformation as well yeah
1: well it's not even disinformation it's hallucinations i actually encountered this myself recently because we were doing an episode of the good friends it hasn't gone out yet but we've recorded it about frank belknap long story the hands of Tindalos. and i thought it would be interesting as an experiment to get chat gpt to write a synopsis of the story and so basically i i told it to go off and do that and it came back and it gave me a synopsis and I, I went through and there were a couple of mistakes and then i got to the end and it wrote it's it, it wrote a an entirely different ending to the story It. it <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it ended with something that was plausible given what happened to the story but bore no relation to what is actually in the text and what was even weirder was i thought well it's an experiment let's try getting google Bard to do this because i mean google Bard is similar but but shitter i mean it's it's really not very good uh and so i got it to do the same thing and it it was even more wrong with a lot of details it threw more mistakes in and it gave it also offered up a bit of a publication history of the story that was entirely wrong and i think at one point it credited authorship to august Derlith, which was weird um and then and then again it wrote its own ending that was almost exactly the same as the ending that ChatGPT had come up with. To the extent where I had to go back and check the original story and just make sure that I wasn't hallucinating it.
2: Like some kind of weird Mandela effect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Oh. That's interesting. So so yeah, so I mean, one of the one of the reasons could be that somewhere on the internet, somebody summarised it and did a synopsis, and that's what they put. Yeah. It
0: could be a fan fiction, thing, goodness, someone's written an ending for it, and when the, the, yes. the, the AI has gone into the web, it's found the beginning, the middle, and it's had a variety of endings, and it's, the most popular one seems to be this, this fan fiction ending that someone's written. There's yeah, but there you go, know, that proves the point, though, doesn't it?
2: Mm. It's, it's tough information. Yeah, and then somebody publishes the hallucination, and and a perpetuate. And it goes yeah. back onto the internet and a large language model picks it up <laughs> six months later and suddenly everywhere on earth everything's changed. <laughs> you was gonna
0: you gonna start talking the the Mandela effect there now.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it it is like the Mandela effect, isn't it? Sort of people who were convinced that Nelson Mandela was dead. Yes. And See it must I know uh, ne- to sort of a Facebook rumor or something back in the day and that went around and the Bernstein verse
0: the Berenstein verse, versus, yeah. the verse. I mean it's still it's fascinating. And the fact that Beats by Dre were never called beats by Dre. Ah. I'm sure they
1: were. Yeah, you know, I've certainly seen them referred to as that. Well, Almost exclusively. They've they've
0: never been called it. They're called beats. Huh. And I I know they've been called beats by Dre. Yeah, because he was one of the developers. Huh. But you know, weird. Um. Okay, we've been going for over two hours now. <laughs> so should we should we should we wrap it up there? Sure. Yeah. Um. um one thing, Scott mm. is a couple of episodes back which translates to a few months ago griff was going to have a play around with my scenario viral and get get it to rewrite it as a shakespearean play <laughs> so if he ever gets around to actually doing that would you be interested in coming on we'll get a couple of other people on and do a reading of it oh yeah as as shake as a shakespearean play i'd love to with the various characters interacting in a shakespearean manner because i think that'd be <laughs> hilarious
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, can me in.
2: I'll get Seth to come on as well. I also got the uh, Chat GPT to review um, viral in different writers' voices. So I did Alan Partridge. one of <laughs> Alan, Alan Partridge <laughs> reviewing it mid-radio shot. Uh. And the really funny thing was it generated that, and it was sort of amusing, um, you know. Uh, but then when I tried it to review uh, but, uh viral, In a different voice, he kept injecting Alan Partridge. He kept mentioning monkey tennis, didn't he? (laughs) Yes, he kept mentioning monkey tennis. So I'd say, could you now review it in the style of Albert Einstein? And it would do it, you know, mentioning physics and being slightly German. And then it would just go monkey tennis.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's been a joy having you on, Scott. Oh,
1: thank you very much for having me on. It's it's been an absolute blast.
0: Well, we'll definitely have you on again. I mean, to be fair, it's, we've got the, the whole premise of the show is it's it's about creepy game and about horror gaming and all that. And I th- I think there's only so many people we can have on before we run out. So uh, <laughs> well, so we'll definitely have you on again another time. So yeah, we'll happy get to a talk other to people you. on. Yeah. yeah, and we'll we'll have a chat about other things.
2: I'd I'd love to get you on um, after Bud's played lampposts in bloom so we could put a spoiler episode oh, yeah. episode
0: out. oh i would love that
2: <laughs> yeah yes we can have a therapy session afterwards
0: <laughs> <laughs> regain your sand at this point <laughs> right well um i suppose this this is where i'll put i'll put um huge music